in the highest. So good to bring glory and honor to the only one who deserves it. The King of Kings. The one who knows us and loves us and calls us by name. This baby born in a manger. Speaking of a, of a baby, I want to invite you to be praying for um, our student pastor, Jared Boyd. His wife is due any day now. Uh, in fact, tomorrow, uh, Lord willing, if uh, the baby doesn't decide to come, they're going to be inducing her tomorrow. So it's an exciting time for our church and for our staff to have this, this newborn baby coming this way. It reminds me of the birth of our youngest son, Nathan. And so what happened that night is about 3 a.m., Christy woke up with pains. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's go to the hospital. And she says, no, I think I'm okay. And I'm like, okay, no, no, no. So I start pacing the room. I'm like, hey, sweet girl, why, why, why don't we go to the hospital? Let's just check it out. I think everything's going to be okay, but let's, let's go ahead and head that way. And she's like, well, I think I'll be okay. I'm just going to go get something to eat. And I'm like, okay, let's go get something to eat. So she goes downstairs, and I'm, I'm just pacing like, this baby's coming tonight. I just know it. we got to do something. This is not going to go well. So then she's like, well, you know what? Let's just kind of start getting our things together, but I don't think we need to go. And I'm like, sweet girl, I love you so much. I think we need to go to the hospital. Okay, so we've got this going back and forth. I'm trying to be gentle and tender and yet lead. And it's, okay, what do you think? Can we move forward now? Okay, so we're, finally she says, you know what? I think we need to go. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Oh, this is time for us to go. So we get into the, into the car and it's 3 a.m. And, and we're working our way to the hospital. I'm sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, this is gonna happen right now. This is gonna be horrible. Well, Christy starts throwing up in the car. And then the smell is so bad, I start throwing up in the car. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this doesn't get any worse than this. And so we're driving, as, not obeying the speed limits. We're trying to get there, and I've got the window down, throwing up out of the car, trying to get to the hospital so we can, we can have this baby. And sure enough, he came three weeks early, and there he comes, just right into the world. But you see, before the birth took place, we knew things were about to get bad. It was about to be really, really hard. In fact, most women, before they give birth, they know this is about to be a really difficult process. Pain and difficulty is about to come. But on the other side, there is hope of a new life and a better future. That is what's happening in the book of Jeremiah. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Jeremiah 23. This Christmas, we're going through a sermon series entitled, The King Has Come. And we're looking through the scriptures, how God took on flesh and how we celebrate the birth of this newborn king. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 9, 6 and how we, we behold our king, who his name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And it's through this newborn king wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger that we see God's love in human flesh. When we get to the book of Jeremiah, the state of Israel does not look good. In fact, not many people will go and have a quiet time in the book of Jeremiah because it's not the most encouraging book. Jeremiah, his ministry is marked with frustration and difficulty. 
Much of his ministry consisted of conflict and, and rejection. He's known as the weeping prophet because throughout his 40 years of ministry, he didn't have any conversions. No one listened to him. In fact, when he was continually preaching against the sins of the people and foretelling of the coming judgment, he was threatened. He was put on trial for his life. He was put in stocks. He was thrown in jail. He was thrown into a pit. He was publicly humiliated by a prophet of the day. An example of the difficulty he faced in chapter 36, King Jehoiakim was taking the words that Jeremiah was preaching for the Lord, and this king was cutting up the word of God and throwing it into the fire, and then sent people to go and try and find Jeremiah to kill him. But it wasn't just the kings who were evil, but the entire southern kingdom of Judah was so morally bankrupt. They were spiritually apathetic, and even the spiritual leaders were hypocritical. Right here in Jeremiah 23, verse 14, it says, the, the Lord says, among the prophets of Jerusalem also I saw a horrible thing. They commit adultery and they walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers and none turns his back on evil. Watch this. They are like Sodom to me. Jerusalem's residents are like Gomorrah. The people were full of selfishness and pride. They were taking advantage of the poor. They worshiped idols, and yet the Lord still loves his people. He knows that if we go our own way, it's going to lead to us hurting one another. It's going to lead to us even hurting ourselves, and it leads to death. The Lord cares about his people. So he's continually calling Judah to repent, return back to me, and I will relent I will not bring judgment if you will repent and you will trust in me. I'll withhold the coming judgment from foreign nations. But the people wouldn't listen. Chapter 23 begins with God making himself abundantly clear that Judah's shepherds, which is a reference to their evil kings, he's going to hold them accountable for their evil schemes. Because the leaders disobeyed the law, because they refused to trust God, because they did not lead the people to follow the Lord, God would bring judgment. And God eventually did bring judgment to the people of Israel through King Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon. They sacked the city of Jerusalem. The city would be ruined. The temple would be destroyed. Most of the people would either be killed or taken into captivity in Babylon. But God was not finished with his people. He promised, verse 3, I will gather the remnant of my flock from all the lands where I have banished them, and I will return them to their grazing land. They will become fruitful and numerous. Indeed, God was faithful to his word. After 70 years of being in captivity in Babylon, God started to bring his people back, and he fulfilled his promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, in which he indeed gives his people a hope and a future. So it's against the dark backdrop of such terrible judgment that God will display his love by sending a king. Notice what the text tells us in Jeremiah 23, beginning with verse 5. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. 
This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Oh, that you would see this Christmas how much God loves you. I want you to see here in the text, God's love for you this Christmas is seen in number one, his plan. His plan. Verse five, the Lord says, look, the days are coming. I love that phrase. God's declaring he has a plan. He is announcing what's going to happen and then he brings it to fulfillment. Kind of like Babe Ruth in the 32 World Series where he points out to the stadiums in left center field and the next pitch, he sends it right to where he says it's gonna go. That's what's happening. The Lord is saying, I'm gonna make something happen. I have a plan that I am going to execute. There is something I am up to here. He's saying, look, verse five, the days are coming. I have a plan. I am up to something. God is telling his people, I've got a plan. It's gonna take place. You see, the one who knows all things is also the one who ordains all things. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Nothing is outside of his sovereign knowledge or control. God has never been surprised or caught off guard. God is not weak. He's not fearful of the future. God does not look upon the state of our world and then pace back and forth in his throne room, wringing his hands unsure of what's gonna happen next. God has a sovereign plan that cannot be thwarted even by evil kings. And God, he's telling his people who are about to go into captivity that there is a plan. He says, the days are coming. You're about to go through something really difficult, but I want you to know the days are coming. I've got a plan. I'm gonna bring it to fulfillment. Maybe you're going through a difficult season in your life right now. Maybe you're on the cusp of a very difficult trial. I want you to hear the Lord say to you, look, I'm up to something. Trust me. I have a plan. And if you are in Christ, whatever the Lord brings to you, it is for your good. And ultimately, it will be for his glory. Which means you and I, we don't have to fear the future. We don't have to be afraid of what we don't know because we know the one who knows all things and who ordains all things and knows the plans that he has and they will come to fulfillment. And as we read the book, as we read the word of God, when we get to the last page, we win. So the rest of this life on this earth, it may not go great for you. The promise that you have right now is not ease and comfort and promise of wealth. That's coming in the new kingdom. It's a promise that will one day be fulfilled. Jeremiah 29 11 has taken place in the life of Israel when they returned back from Babylon. And for us as believers, it will find its final fulfillment in the new kingdom. So whatever it is that you're going through right now, I want you to know that God has a plan and he will see to it that his plan is accomplished. I want you to see, secondly, God's love for you this Christmas is seen in his proclamation. 
It's not just his plan, but it's proclamation. Verse five, this is the Lord's declaration. God is speaking to his people. Hear me today, God is not silent. Don't don't rush past these words when you're studying your Bible. God is speaking to his people. He's a speaking God who so graciously reveals himself to us. If God did not speak, we would be groping around in the dark, creating our own gods, not sure of who he is or what he is like. One of the more heartbreaking experiences of my life was two and a half years ago when Christy and I, when we were in China, picking up our little girl, Elian. And while we were there, we visited these Buddhist temples in which we saw these statues made of gold in which people would come and bow down and pray and bring offerings. They were worshiping the statue, this statue made with human hands. It has a mouth, but it cannot speak. It has the features of a human, but it has no engagement. It's just a piece of metal. And yet they bowed down and they worshiped it and they, and they gave it honor and they gave it, gave, gave it glory. And inside my heart, I'm like, no. God has spoken. He doesn't sit quietly like a statue. He is verbal. He speaks. Verse five, this is the Lord's declaration. God has a word for you. He wants to speak to you. He is relational. He wants to reveal himself to you. You see, Yahweh is not silent. He speaks. Now, there's two ways that God reveals himself. General revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what God reveals in creation. So through the ant, through the killer whale, through the Himalayas, And through the Mars landing, we see creation. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Through the human body, through what we can see around us, God is speaking through creation. But we don't know his name. We don't know who he is through general revelation. That's why we need special revelation. We need the gospel. We need for God to speak to us specifically. And we see this ultimately realized here in the Bible, in the word of God. Did you know that the phrase, thus says the Lord, or God said, it shows up more than 3,800 times in the Bible. Over and over, God is saying, this is my word. I have a word for my people for a specific time, for a specific place, applied to my people for all time. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so God wants to speak directly to you. This is why gathering regularly with the church matters. It matters that every week you are here and you're seated because when else throughout the rhythm of your life do you stop? And for 30 minutes, you hear the word of God read over you, explained to you, applied to you. 
These are holy, consecrated moments when a preacher stands up and he opens up the word of God and says, thus says the Lord. God has spoken. It matters that you're here. It matters that you take time to open this book because God has revealed himself to you. He is a God who proclaims and who he speaks, and he speaks directly to you through his word. You know what's amazing is God never gives you the cold shoulder. He never throws a tantrum and decides to give you the silent treatments. No, 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 he's eager to speak to you so that you might know him more, you might love him more. You draw near to him and he will draw near to you. So as the people of Judah, they're about to suffer greatly at the hands of Babylon, but God is still speaking to them. He is still making declarations to them. But then also notice number three, he's making them a promise, a promise. Verse five, the days are coming, watch this promise from the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. We see verse five, God has a plan. We see verse five, he's going to tell, declare, proclaim what that plan is. What's amazing, he's like a quarterback who's calling out a play at the line of scrimmage. And then he starts telling the defense, we're about to run this play. We're going to run right through this mark. And we know you can't stop us. Here's the Lord saying, here's what's going to happen. We're going to raise up a righteous branch from the lineage of David. We're going to go right down this path right here. And even Satan himself cannot stop God's plan. Here he is making a promise, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to fulfill my word. There will still be one who will come forth from the lineage of David. We talked about this last week in 2 Samuel 7 where God made a covenant with his people in which he said to David, I'm gonna raise up one from your family, from your bloodline, from your heritage who will sit on your throne forever. Well, as Jerusalem is about to be sacked, as the king after king after king has failed, showing that they are not the promised king of David that they were looking for, God is saying, do not worry. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm still going to raise up this righteous branch for David. God declares his promise out loud for all to hear. And when God makes a promise to his people, he keeps it. And he says, verse five, I'm gonna raise up a righteous branch. That's a peculiar term for us. That's a phrase that you and I don't really use on a regular basis, but it's a phrase speaking of royalty. It's a name that references a son who is the legitimate heir to the throne. So in our contemporary context, it's kind of like Prince William over in England he is the branch who will one day sit on the throne of England. Well, here, God is declaring that he will raise up a righteous branch who will sit on the throne of David. Remember how God made that covenant with David? He's gonna sit on this throne forever. Well, the righteous branch is the future king that shoots up from the lineage of David. We see God keeping his promise I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. 
In Isaiah 11, verse 1, he says, A shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Isaiah eleven ten 10 says, on that day, the root of Jesse, who's the father of King David, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. You see, in Jeremiah's day, the colossal tree of Israel was about to be cut down to a stump. And as Ann Voskamp writes so beautifully, she says, out of the stump came one tender branch that would grow right into a crown of thorns, right into a rugged cross, right into a ladder, your ladder back to God. You see, this righteous branch is the royal son of David who, Zechariah 6, would build the Lord's temple and be clothed in splendor as he sits on the throne. This righteous branch is the one, Zechariah 3, who will remove the iniquity of his land in a single day. Fast forward to Good Friday. Jesus goes to the cross where he not only crushes the head of the serpent, but in a single day removes the sin of all people who trust in him. You see, the righteous branch is King Jesus who leads, saves, and protects his people through his finished work on the cross. You see, this righteous branch died on the tree so that you could be forgiven. This righteous branch, he has a name. Verse six, the Lord is our righteousness. Oh, buddy, here we go. What a name, righteousness describes the character of God. He is the just judge. He is upright in all of his ways. This righteous branch, his name means to be pure and holy. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Three times in these two verses, that word righteous, it shows up. He is the righteous branch who administers righteousness in the land. And his name is, the Lord is our righteousness. That's his name because that's who he is. It's in his nature. It's in his essence. It's an attribute of God's character as the one who is just, perfect, and holy in all of his ways. So what, Kenneth? What does this have to do with me? How does this apply to my life? Well, let me show you two life-changing truths, and I'm not trying to use hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration. I believe if you can grab hold of these two truths, this changes your life. It changes everything. I want you to see first, you are permanently and positionally righteous. Oh, please grab hold of that. Don't let that pass you by. This is a declaration of who you are. This is who you are. You are righteous. It's a permanent declaration of who you are. You see, the moment you believe the gospel, the righteousness of Jesus was imputed to you. You were justified. You were declared righteous. 
holy, blameless at the moment you believe the gospel. So maybe you were six years old, or maybe you were 36 years old, or maybe you were 106 years old. When the moment you believed the gospel, at that moment, you became righteous. You were perfect. You are holy in the sight of God. This is amazing here. We see it all throughout the New Testament, but we even see it here in Jeremiah 23. The Lord is our righteousness. It means that all of your sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to Jesus. He took all of your sin the moment that you believed. And then at that moment, there's a holy exchange. His righteousness is now applied to you. Oh, this is amazing. So now you're no longer a sinner who barely gets into heaven by the skin of your teeth. No, you are righteous and holy and blameless in the sight of God, not because of anything that you have done, but all because of what Christ did for you at the cross. And at the moment you believe, you're permanently and positionally righteous. You see, positional righteousness is the permanent state of being just before God upon the merits of Christ. Oh, this is so good. 1 Peter 3.18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. This is your permanent position in Christ. This is who you are. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, God made him who knew no sin become sin. So that, come on, Bruce, where'd it go? God made him who knew no sin become sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. So all of your sin is placed upon Jesus and all of his righteousness is placed upon you. Come on. That should bring great liberty and joy to you. You don't have to worry, okay, does God accept me? Does God like me? Does God love me? If you're in Christ, you have all of his righteousness. It means that there is no charge that can be brought against you. Like you stand before the Lord, holy and complete, completely because of what Christ did for you. The Lord is your righteousness. But Kenneth, what about, what about when I sin? Well, here's the good news. Write down 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read it to you. John says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you see the connection? Do you see 1 John 2 and Jeremiah 23? They're holding hands. They're pointing us to Jesus. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. He's perfect in all of his ways, and so now are you. Because of your union with Christ, his righteousness is now your righteousness. His perfection is now your perfection. Because 
His death is now your death. His resurrection is now your resurrection. All the beauty of what God's done for us by giving us Christ at Christmas. Don't lose sight of this. Okay, so now that A is true, B is also true. Okay, they they hold hands. This is important. So not only are you permanently and positionally righteous, but part B here, you are growing practically in righteousness. Okay, this is the day by day becoming more and more like Jesus. You see, you and I, we still sin. Because we're still in the flesh, because we live in an ungodly world that hates God, because we are still tempted by the enemy, Satan, we, you and I, we still fall into sin. Now, our permanent position has been sealed. It has been taken care of by Christ. But now that you are in Christ, there is a practical righteousness. It means that you and I are becoming more and more like Jesus. It's a process. We call it sanctification. We see it throughout the New Testament where God's changing you. You're different. It means that now that you belong to Christ, you're just a different person. So when I go and hang out with friends, uh, so last week I'm in Kentucky with my dad helping with, with cancer treatments, and I went to spend some time with a few of my friends, and they looked at me, and they're just like, you are so different. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because of Jesus. When you meet Jesus, you change. Doesn't mean you're immediately perfect in this life, in your behavior, in your attitudes, in your words. Until the moment you and I take our last breath, we're gonna be waging war against sin. It's always gonna be there, okay? Until we take our last breath. But positionally, it's taken care of. That's the beauty of what God does here. He says, don't worry about your eternal future if you're in Christ. I've taken care of that. Now that you are in Christ, pursue after me. You're practically growing in righteousness. The things that you used to think were funny are no longer funny. The sin that you used to commit is no longer a temptation. You don't want that anymore. The curse words used to fly so easily out of your mouth. Now there's a, ooh, I don't want to speak like that anymore. What's happening? The Holy Spirit. He's changing you on the inside. He's making you practically righteous. He's making you more and more like Christ. Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. It's God's mission is to make you more and more like Jesus. This leads us to our impact point. You are righteous. Now live it. Do you see it? You gotta have this truth, you're righteous. It's not something God takes away from you. You don't lose your salvation. You don't lose your righteousness if you are in Christ. But now go live who you already are. You see, as you now belong to Jesus, it's time to go and be who you already are. You're already righteous and blameless in his sight. Now, go live a righteous and blameless life. But you see, in this life, it's going to be hard. You're going to have enemies who will rise up against you. Sometimes it's your own flesh. Sometimes it's the world around you. Sometimes it's the enemy himself. You're going to struggle. And just as a mom is about to give birth, you know it's about to get really, really hard. There's a lot of pain that you're about to experience. But on the other side, it's the hope of new life. It's the hope of a better future. Well, as you and I are here in this world right now, we're going through the pains of childbirth. 
We're going through trial. We're going through difficulty. But on the other side, there is the hope of a new life. There is a better future that is coming for us. And it is all because our King has come. Thank you.